Acts chapter 2. We are engaged in studying what is commonly referred to as Peter's, <coughs> excuse me, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Um, you understand, of course, that um, back in those days, uh, the word sermon hadn't even been invented yet. And uh, he wasn't viewing it. I don't think Peter himself wasn't viewing it, nor the people listening to him so much as a quote-unquote sermon. I mean, generally speaking, in Christian tradition, we tend to think of the sermon as this portion of a church service where the pastor stands up and, and shares a message. And that's fine. There's no problem with referring to, referring to it as a sermon. But you understand that what's happening here on the day of Pentecost, what we're currently studying, was not a church service. The church was involved, but this is really an evangelism moment. This is really a, the church spilling out into the streets and actually representing the truth of who Jesus is, what he came to accomplish, and what it all means and how it should impact their lives. Um, it's not so much within the four walls of the church. There were no church buildings at this point in history, and uh, this, is, this is more of a, an evangelism circumstance. Now, what we've covered so far is that uh, Peter chooses to start his message, his proclamation of the gospel, interestingly, with an Old Testament prophecy quote. He quotes from the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. We'll go back and we'll revisit that in a moment uh, as part of our study today. And he takes that prophecy from Joel, which was delivered by the Spirit of God through the prophet Joel hundreds of years before this day. And he applies it, Peter does, to the events that are happening on this day. And he essentially says, Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled today in the events of Pentecost and what the Lord had done with the filling of the 120 disciples who started out in the upper room, but they were filled with the Spirit of God and now they are outside the upper room and they're interacting with a crowd of, what we're going to learn at the end of chapter 2 is a crowd of some 3,000 people that have gathered from the surrounding city of Jerusalem. Out of curiosity, they've, they have literally heard sounds and it stirred their curiosity and they came to find out what was going on. And Peter, uh, making use of this spiritual moment opportunity, he begins to proclaim the gospel to them. And he starts with this Old Testament quote and connection to these events. Now, in our, in our focus so far through the early portion of this message that Peter shares, we've identified three main things that Peter's doing in this message. One, he is saying, look, Joel talked about the Holy Spirit being poured out, and that is then leading to a sequence of wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth beneath. And that will in turn lead as a signal to a final great day, but not great in the sense of, wow, this is something wonderful to look forward to, but great in significance for the nation of Israel, the day of the Lord, which is not a day for for the city of Jerusalem, it's not going to be a day of, of pleasure. It's not going to be a day of enjoyment. It's going to be a day of terror and a day of great judgment. And of course, within a single generation of time from when Peter was declaring these words, 
He's in the year 30 AD, and within a single generation, a biblical generation of 40 years, in the events of 70 AD, all of these things that Peter was describing were fulfilled. And of course, uh, he is applying Joel's prophecy, not just to the day of Pentecost, but to the unfolding sequence of events that will lead to that destruction of the city and destruction of the temple. And so those signs and wonders we saw in our previous study were actually 70 AD judgment focused signs and wonders. True miraculous interventions of the Lord in the events of history, but not so much in what we would call favorable signs and wonders. Now, that leads us to a final portion of his quoting of Joel's prophecy. So let's reread, starting where Peter started in verse 17, and I'll read through verse 21, and we're going to focus for our study today just on that final verse in that section, verse 21. So starting in Acts 2, 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Peter starts this quote of Joel's prophecy exactly where Joel starts it, of course, and that is, Verse 17, in the last days it shall be. And Peter is identifying the events of the day of Pentecost as the official start of the last days. In our study, what we've interpreted and what we're applying is that it's not the last days of all of history that Peter's talking about. There will be days beyond these events that he's, that he's describing. We're living in days beyond these events. But it is the last days of something greatly significant, and that is the last days of what we call now the Old Covenant or the Old Testament era, the old way that God chose to enter into covenant relationship with humanity. Those days are coming to an end, and this event, Day of Pentecost, signals the beginning of that last 40-year era of history. It ends with the destruction of the temple, the whole way that the the people of the Lord approached God and had a a spiritual relationship with him, coming to the temple in order to offer animal sacrifices, coming through the agency of Levitical priests, all of that is going away. The temple is going to be destroyed as Jesus had predicted it would, and it was actually destroyed in 70 AD. All of the Levitical priesthood was wiped out in the great judgment that fell upon the city. All of the animal sacrificial system came to a crashing end. And from that time in 70 AD forward in history, all the way up until our day, there's been not a single animal sacrifice that has been offered by the people of God that was acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. Because the shift 
from Old Covenant to New Covenant takes us from a Levitical priesthood to a New Covenant royal priesthood. It takes us from an animal sacrificial system to the one final and great sacrifice that all of those sacrifices had pointed forward to as symbols and as types, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so all of this has now started, but I want you to notice that while Peter starts with the signal of the beginning of the last days, in verse 21, he ends where Joel's prophecy ends with this reference to, and, meaning it's what he's about to say in verse 21 is connected to all of those verses that precede, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, this is a, a simple line, and the, the study connected to it is not meant to be Uh, terribly mysterious or obscure to us but there's more to what was being said here than is obvious laying right on the surface of the text and that's why i wanted to save an entire study for this the question i have is why does joel end his prophecy of these events with this line about it shall come to pass that everyone call who calls on the name of the lord will be saved and then why does peter quote this And why does he stop his quote exactly where he does? Because Joel didn't stop with the word saved, but Peter does. So in a moment, we'll go back to Joel and we'll, in fact, you can start heading over there now, um, finding your way to Joel chapter 2, which is in the Old Testament prophets just after the book of Hosea. And just before the book of Amos, Joel chapter 2. We're not going to revisit the whole prophecy that uh, we have looked at in detail before, but we're going to focus on how Joel ends, actually how he begins this section that Peter quotes and how he ends it as well. So how does Peter understand what Joel is saying and how does he apply it? And what I'm going to derive from it is I believe there are two levels of meaning. <clears throat> they're running, <clears throat> excuse me, they're running parallel to each other. I think both meanings are in focus here. Joel, however, is primarily focused on one level of meaning, and Peter broadens it to an additional level of meaning. So let's look first at how Joel starts in verse 28. This is the portion, of course, that that Peter is quoting on the day of Pentecost. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then skipping down, we'll uh, skip through the part about the sons and daughters, the, the uh, seeing of visions, the dreaming of dreams, the spirit being poured out, wonders in heaven, um, signs on the earth, all of that, the sun turn to darkness, moon to blood. We've covered all of those things. Let's look now at verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and this portion that I'm reading now, Peter doesn't quote, but it doesn't mean he's disregarding this portion of Joel's prophecy. He's just not emphasizing it in the same way that I want to first emphasize it because Joel did. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem 
there shall be those who what? There shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, the first thing I want us to notice is that right after the word saved, which is where Peter stops his quote of Joel, there is this little connector word that comes next in the text, and it's the word for. And that's just cluing us in that what Joel has just said about everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved is connected to the next line which describes what he means by everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the question is, saved, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved from what? Well, that's, that's a good possible conclusion. Uh, someone said here near the front that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved from sin. So normally when we think of people out in the world today that don't know the Lord and you as a believer go and share the gospel with them and the goal of your sharing the gospel is to hopefully stir in their hearts a new awareness of their need for the Lord a new awareness of their true spiritual condition which is that they are disconnected in a in a heart level relationship from the God who made them for his purposes and in that disconnection they are lost and they are without even realizing it truly spiritually dead and living in spiritual darkness a natural life but no real and true spiritual life being experienced by them. And so you share the gospel, which is the life of God as an offer to their hearts. You share the gospel with them and you truly hope that their hearts will be stirred in a, in a powerful way to respond to that call of the Lord in that gospel offer and that they will then call on the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And your hope is that they will be saved from the spiritual death that they're living in, they'll be saved from the spiritual darkness that they're living in, and they will experience new life in Christ. And in that context, they truly would be spiritually saved from their sins. But is that what Joel is focused on in the prophecy here? He says... For, after he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be, and I'm, I'm going to emphasize two key words from the rest of this quote. There shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. The two key words I want you to focus on are the words escape and survivors. What is Joel describing? He's describing the day of the Lord that is not going to happen in his day. If you read the whole book of Joel from beginning to end, what you'll see is there was a judgment of the Lord that Israel was experiencing in the days of Joel. And it was a severe judgment. And it really affected the entire nation. And there was no escaping that judgment. The judgment was the Lord brought a horde of invaders into the promised land 
into the land of Israel and into the city of Jerusalem. That horde of invaders were not a natural uh, army that was attacking the city. It was an army of locusts. And the locusts, when they came, were so numerous, and this plague was so severe upon the nation that these locusts came in and they literally ate, consumed all of the crops in the entire land of Israel. Now, what happens if you're an agriculturally based society and locusts come along and eat all of your crops? What happens to the society? You enter into what's known as a time of famine, famine in the land. Now, you and I have never experienced that. There are places in the world today that experience famine. Uh, For instance, in the area that we uh, minister to the Kenyan pastors in the far northwest portion of Kenya, there there are numerous tribes that are experiencing severe famine because it hasn't rained in any appreciable amount for three years in this one area. And the people there are struggling. This is why uh, Pastor Mike that I go to Kenya with does, along with the pastoral training, he does famine relief where he, he raises money from here and, and goes and purchases large amounts of food. And, and instead of hoping that it somehow gets to the people that need it, he literally trucks it to the people that most need it and hands that food out. And it's literally survival level circumstances for them and a tremendous blessing for them. But you and I have never experienced famine in the land. I mean, we've experienced, you know, the economy is on a downward slope and all of the economists now are saying we're heading into a recession and it could get significantly severe in comparison to how things have been. But what are we talking about for us in terms of recession? Is that famine in the land? You know, I'm still going to go to Ralph's and I'm still going to buy the food that I want to buy or go to a restaurant and eat the food that I want to eat. I'm not going to starve and you're not going to starve either. But in Israel, they were starving. It was so severe and it was so terrible and it was affecting the entire nation. That's what was happening in Joel's day. But Joel is saying at this portion of the prophecy, afterward there's going to be, after this judgment, there's going to be one more judgment that's coming and it's going to be even greater than this one that we're experiencing now, that we're living through now. And it's going to be a day of the Lord level judgment. A day of the Lord level judgment means, you know, like using military terminology, it's DEFCON level three. This is, this is so severe, it has the potential to wipe out the entire nation, which of course actually happened in the events of 70 AD. So when he's talking about that kind of judgment, and it is coming in the future upon Israel, he says, and it shall come to pass in verse 32, it shall come to pass in that day with that more severe judgment, that day of the Lord level judgment, when it hits, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? save from that judgment, save from the circumstances that are going to devastate the nation in that day. That's why he goes on to immediately talk about four in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, meaning this is going to be a Jerusalem-focused judgment. In that location, there shall be those who escape. And as the Lord has said, 
among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Meaning there are going to be people during the 70 AD judgment scenario that did happen. In Joel's day, it's still prophesied. It's still future. And when it takes place, there will be those who call in the name of the Lord. And in that call, they will experience a deliverance from the Lord and they will find a way of escape from that circumstance. So if the circumstance of judgment is centered on the city of Jerusalem, where will they be escaping from? Jerusalem. And where will they be escaping to? And, and the issue is, will there be any survivors of this judgment that's going to fall? Now, what that tells us is, when the Lord talks about those who call on the name of the Lord being saved, and there are two categories of the call of the Lord and the salvation of the Lord that are in focus here. And the categories are what I'm going to call, these are not exact Bible terms, but they're Bible concepts, spiritual salvation and practical salvation. Spiritual salvation is rescue from sin. I don't know the Lord. I'm lost in darkness. I'm spiritually dead and disconnected from God. God stirs my heart when I hear the gospel. I call on his name. I call out for his forgiveness and his saving work in my life. And he causes me to be born again. And I have new life from Christ. That is a spiritual salvation from sin. But now I'll use a completely different scenario, one that you're all familiar with. Noah lived in a time of impending judgment that was about to fall on the entire planet. And he called on the name of the Lord. And as a result of his calling on the name of the Lord, by God's grace, as a result of his calling on the name of the Lord, he escaped, he and his family escaped from the practical circumstances of judgment that fell upon the earth. He was also spiritually saved from his sins, but he practically escaped the circumstances of outpoured judgment so that when the flood came, Noah survived, as Joel emphasizes, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Another example, the children of Israel during the time of the 10 plagues on Egypt, the Lord made a distinction between the judgment that was poured out upon the entire land of Egypt and the location where the children of Israel were living in the land of Goshen. And those plagues devastated the entire nation of Egypt, but the Lord created a bubble of safety and security around the land of Goshen where the children of Israel resided so that they were not devastated in the same way that the nation that was under judgment surrounding them were devastated. Another example, Abraham and Lot during, during the days of, of course, the judgment of the Lord upon Sodom and Gomorrah. So the Lord intended and purposed to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And in that, he negotiated with Abraham from the, from the cliff that overlooked the Zoar Valley where those cities were located. And the Lord sent two angels into the city of Sodom in order to do what? 
to rescue Lot and his family for the, from the impending judgment that was coming upon the city. Had Lot and his family stayed in the city when the judgment fell, what would have happened to Lot and his family? They would have been burned up just like the rest of the city was as fire fell from the Lord upon those cities. But the Lord rescued him and his family out from those cities. So he escaped the judgment and he was a survivor. Same thing for Noah, same thing for the children of Israel during the plagues on Egypt. That's what Joel is actually focused on. So Joel is talking about a coming final judgment upon Israel in the events of 70 AD. But he's saying there's going to be, practically speaking, real survivors of this event. Now, I did this before when we studied this same concept in our study through Matthew chapter 24 as Jesus was prophesying of these these events that were coming in the in the year 70 AD. But I'm going to just read uh, a portion of the ones that I read in that study. These are excerpts from actual historians and describing the events of 70 AD in terms of those that were destroyed in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and those that survived those events. This first one is from an early Christian historian. Uh, just hang in there with the quote because he, he's writing in an ancient style. But this is from the historian Eusebius. The whole body, and this is all in relationship to what happened just prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The whole body, however, of the church at Jerusalem, having been commanded by a divine revelation, given to men of approved piety there before the war, removed from the city and dwelt at a certain town beyond the Jordan called Pella. This was an actual town in the Jordan area. Here, those that believed in Christ, having removed or escaped from Jerusalem, as if holy men had entirely abandoned the royal city itself and the whole land of Judea, the divine justice for their crimes against Christ and his apostles finally overtook them, totally destroying the whole generation of those evildoers from the earth. Now this is from uh, John Gill. The Romans, having besieged Jerusalem, suddenly, without cause, suspended the siege. What happened in the events the last six months leading up to the final invasion, the final destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple, the Romans laid siege to the city of Jerusalem by literally surrounding it with the Roman legions. And word came to that surrounding army that there was great turmoil back in the city of Rome. And the great turmoil was that um, there was a civil war that had started in Rome trying to determine who was going to be the next Roman emperor. And so the general in charge of the siege had his surrounding armies temporarily withdraw from surrounding the city and he left and he went back to Rome and he actually became the next Roman emperor. When that siege temporarily drew back, the believers within the city saw that as the signal that Jesus had warned them about back in Matthew 24. We'll read that in just a moment. And they escaped the city and they fled in the, into the Judean wilderness as the Lord had, 
had uh, instructed them to do, and they found safety and security. And then the siege was restarted. It encircled the city, and everybody that remained in the city was swept away in that judgment. So the Romans, having besieged Jerusalem, suddenly, without cause, suspended the siege and withdrew the army when the city would have been easily taken. By this means, a signal was made and an opportunity given to the Christians to make their escape, which they did. They went over to Jordan, to Pella, so that when Titus, that was the Roman general, came to Jerusalem months later, there was not a Christian found in the city. And then this third historian, uh, Clark, as the Roman siege began, all who believed in Christ left Jerusalem and fled to Pella and other places beyond the river Jordan, and so they all escaped the shipwreck of their country. Not one of them, that's not one of the believers that were previously in the city, not one of them perished. All right, those are the historian accounts, but let's, let's remind ourselves, let's head forward from Joel and just briefly reread the warning that Jesus made in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. And this should be just by way of reminder for your, your perspective. And the focus here now is what I'm calling practical salvation that was experienced by the church during the events of 70 AD. Matthew 24, starting in verse 15. Jesus speaking to his disciples says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and in parentheses, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. For, and alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. All right, let's turn from there to the Gospel of Luke and read the parallel warning that Jesus gave. This chapter in Luke 21 is focused on the same circumstances, warning about the impending judgment in 70 AD. And this is just Luke's account of the same warning that Jesus issued to his disciples. We'll start reading here in verse 20. Matthew talked about the abomination of desolation. Luke doesn't use um, that exact terminology instead he describes what that means verse 20 but when you see jerusalem surrounded by armies so there was coming a time and it did happen exactly 40 years after jesus spoke these words where the city of jerusalem was surrounded by the roman armies and he is warning his disciples that's a signal for you when you see that happening this is what i want you to do then know that it's just desolation has come near Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city, the city of Jerusalem, depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. 
They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All right, so what are we talking about? We're talking about a warning of an impending judgment in 70 AD. We're talking about the application of a prophecy that Joel made hundreds of years before. And we're talking about two levels or two elements of the experience of salvation. One is focused on spiritual salvation from sin, but the other is focused on practical salvation from the circumstances of danger that are presenting itself in this particular judgment. Joel's focus believe it or not, is on the practical salvation of escaping that judgment and its circumstances. Now, on the day of Pentecost, Peter is aware of that practical warning, and he wants the Christians to respond in the right way, which he's going to refer to at the end of his Acts 2 Pentecost Day sermon. But he's more concerned even than will you escape the circumstances of judgment in 70 AD? He's more concerned with the spiritual salvation that that assembled 3,000 souls needs to experience from the Lord. Let's uh, head back to Acts 2 now. And we're going to jump once more. We did this last week, but we're going to jump once more to the end of his sermon. And we're going to see that Peter is really focused on both of these elements of the experience of salvation. So here's, here's your circumstance. I want you to put yourself for a moment in the shoes, <clears throat> or technically the sandals, of the 3,000 people that have gathered to find out what's going on here on the day of Pentecost with this 120 disciples of Christ. And Peter is sharing this message with you. And you have two problems in your life. You know how it is. I mean, if I asked you, can you list out all the problems you have in your life? You could make a long list, I'm sure. But they had two big problems that rise above everything else that's a problem in life. One is their hearts are not right with the Lord. That's the first and the biggest problem they have. And the only answer to that is spiritual salvation. But they have another problem. Even if they are spiritually saved, they have a problem that there is a judgment heading their way. A judgment that's going to be like a flood in Noah's day. It's not going to be a flood of water. It's going to be a flood of Roman soldiers that's going to surround and overwhelm the city and the temple. And if they happen to be in the city when the day that that actually happens occurs, they're going to be swept away in that judgment just like the rest that remain in the city. So they need to respond to the Lord with a spiritual response and be saved. And they need to respond practically to the warning of the Lord that when you see this signal, get out of Dodge so that you can survive these events. Now at the end of Peter's message, let's look down again as he's finished his message, he's finished his sermon, and the people in verse 37 we're told we're cut to the heart and they cry out and say, what shall we do in response to what you've just told us? In verse 38, Peter said to them, repent, which is of course the righteous response to the spiritual call to be saved. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, this resolves your greatest problem, your need for spiritual salvation. 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. That's the second layer. The second layer focused on practical salvation. We know in verse 40, Peter's not talking about spiritual salvation because there's not a single place anywhere in the entirety of God's revealed word that we call the scriptures, that we call the Bible. Not a single place where God identifies, this is how you get spiritually saved. Save yourselves. If you tried, you wouldn't be able to accomplish it. We are completely unable to spiritually save ourselves. So he addresses spiritual salvation back up in verse 38 and verse 39. But in verse 40, he shifts to the other emphasis in Joel's prophecy because these people have two problems. The problem of the need for spiritual salvation, but they also have the, the, the need to get out of the city of Jerusalem in time to not be swept away in the judgments coming upon the city. And in that context, when he says, save yourselves from this, this perverse and corrupt generation, he's basically saying, you need to get away from those that God is judging when the moment of judgment actually arrives. Now, the church stayed in the city after this day, and it grew, and it thrived, and developed in the city all the way up until 70 AD. And then the church left the city when they saw the signal that the Lord had given them, and they escaped into the wilderness of Judea, most of them to the city of Pella, but others to other locations in that same wilderness area, and they survived the flood of the judgment of the Roman legions that overwhelmed the city of Jerusalem. Now, this brings us to the concept that biblically speaking, and now we're going to just focus on the spiritual salvation aspect. We've, we've focused enough attention on the practical salvation by escaping the circumstances when the time comes. But now let's focus for a moment on spiritual salvation. And involved in that spiritual salvation experience, there are what the Bible teaches are three calls involved in a true spiritual salvation experience. Three calls. Peter, in the portion I just emphasized, was primarily focused on the third call. And I'll explain that in a moment. But call number one is this. In every true spiritual salvation moment, when a a lost soul is truly saved, preceding that salvation, there is a call that has gone out that that soul has heard. And not just that soul, but others that are in the vicinity of that person that just got saved. This is what we call the universal call of the gospel. Meaning when the Lord tells and, and you've got a couple of references there on the overhead. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Luke chapter 24, verse 47. Those are Mark and Luke's version of what we call the Great Commission. I won't turn and read those. You can uh, look those up in your own time. There's a similar version in Matthew 28 as we studied what we call the Great Commission of the church. 
When the Lord sends the church out into the world, which he did just before his ascension, who does he want the church to go and share the gospel with? The entire world. Not excluding anybody. We're not meant as the servants of the Lord, the messengers of the Lord in the, in the sharing of the gospel. We're not meant to look out in the world around us and say, you know what, that person deserves to hear the message, but this one over here, no, I'm not going to go share with that person. Or I will share with this group, and I'm not going to go share with that group. Or I'll share with this culture and this society, this nation, but there's no way I'm going to this other nation. Now, not every single individual believer goes to every person or goes to every group or goes to every nation. But the church as a whole has been made responsible by the Lord to share the gospel openly and freely with the entire world around us, excluding no one from that sharing. And in that sharing, what we do is essentially proclaim the message of who Jesus is, why he came into this world, what he did to qualify as Savior, how he actually saved us, and what the great significance of his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension back to heaven actually mean. All of that is included in the proclamation of the gospel, and we are to openly and freely share all of that with anyone that the Lord places in front of us for that purpose, or anyone that the Lord brings us to share that gospel message with. So what we're talking about here with the universal call is it's an external call, meaning we're not talking so much about what's happening in the heart of the people listening. The external call, the universal call is simply, I find a group of people and I proclaim the message to them I don't know how the different ones are hearing it. I don't know how the different ones are going to respond to it. Uh, One person may be being stirred. The other person may be hating me in the depths of their heart because I'm sharing this message with them. But that doesn't matter. I'm simply to proclaim the message in a universal way. I'm externally to their ears calling them to respond to the message of the gospel. Now, it is true that not everyone who hears the external call responds to it in a saving way. You can have, like here on the day of Pentecost, it was a special circumstance. 3,000 people gathered to hear Peter. And as those 3,000 people gathered, Peter, by the Spirit of God, proclaimed the message. And how many of those 3,000 were actually saved on the day of Pentecost? All of them. That's an amazing, powerful working of the Lord. It wasn't because Peter was exceptionally persuasive or he said it just exactly the right way and therefore he convinced those 3,000 people to be saved. The Spirit of God was at work in the hearts of all those 3,000 in such a powerful way that he drew them to actually respond in a saving way. But there are times you might share with, this, with another group of 3,000, proclaim the gospel message, the exact same information, just as effectively as you did the first time. And the next time, it might be that none of the 3,000 respond in a saving way. And they may all be mad at you. And you may have to get out of Dodge after you proclaim the message. You don't know because 
you're not in charge as the gospel messenger of who does and doesn't respond to the gospel. So the universal call goes out to all. But how do we account for the fact that some do, when they hear the message, get impacted by it? And not just in, I'm mentally curious about this now, but I'm talking about their hearts are affected, their hearts are changed, their hearts find the ability to respond in a truly saving way. This is what we call the internal call, or the, as theologians describe it, the effectual call of salvation. This is something that the Lord takes that external message that's been proclaimed to their physical ears. Their brain is now processing the information that they've heard. And the Lord, and only he can do this, I I don't know who you consider to be the greatest evangelist in all of church history, but you can, you can take the greatest evangelist and he's not able to reach into a person's heart and to flip that switch that only he can flip in their hearts and to change their perspective from, I, I, this doesn't matter to me, I don't care about this, or even worse, I hate this and I'm resisting this, to suddenly, this, this, is, this is my life. This is, this is some new and wonderful information. And I will just tell you from my personal experience, I heard the gospel, the true gospel, more than once before the day I actually was saved. But then there was one day that I was impacted, not just externally by what message I heard, but internally, the Lord reached into my heart and just changed it. He took the heart of stone out of me and replaced it with a heart of flesh and I found myself responding to it in a saving way. That's what we call the effectual call. But what I want to emphasize is this is the effectual call of the great shepherd. Now he's working through the agency of the Holy Spirit, but this is the shepherd, the Lord Jesus, calling to the hearts of those that he identifies as his sheep. Let's turn over to the Gospel of John. Yes, I love this portion. My eternity is linked to this portion of Scripture. Gospel of John, chapter 10. I'm just going to jump from, uh, and you've, you see in the overhead, I think, the uh, references there uh, to different verses. I wish I had time to develop this more fully. John, chapter 10, we'll read from verse 3 and 4. This is the Lord Jesus, and he's using the experience of salvation, driving home the concepts using the imagery familiar to them of a shepherd and his sheep. Verse 3. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls, the shepherd does, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before him and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Now skipping down to verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What fold is he talking about? He's talking about the fold of Israel. And he says, I have other sheep that are not of the fold of Israel. Who are the other sheep that are not of the fold of Israel? Sheep from among the Gentiles. He doesn't mean that every Gentile is one of his sheep, but he says, I have other sheep who are part of another group of people 
that are not identified at this present moment as the covenant people of the Lord, Israel, but they are just as much my sheep. They're my sheep before I've even called to them. They're my sheep before they've even heard the gospel. They don't know it yet, and they haven't been saved by that knowledge and understanding yet, but they are going to be. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they, future tense now, they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And of course, that's the the new covenant reality that we have one great shepherd over the flock of all that are the true sheep of the Lord, whether they came from a, a Jewish background or whether they came from a Gentile background, we are now identified as the sheep of the Lord Jesus. Now, skipping down once more to verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, meaning you're the Messiah, the chosen one, the special one. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, this is an interesting emphasis. Normally, believers tend to read this as exactly the opposite of what he just said. He said, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He doesn't say, you are not among my sheep because you do not believe. He says exactly the opposite. In other words, it's not our believing, it's not our believing that makes us one of the sheep of the Lord. It's us being one of the sheep of the Lord that makes us a believer. When the moment comes for the Lord to call us with this effectual, internal, spiritually powerful, and ultimately irresistible call of salvation. But you do not believe because you were not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So this is the second of the three calls. This this powerful, effectual, internal and spiritual call. So two calls are now going on in the moment of salvation. I just heard the external call, the information of the gospel, but the Lord takes that saving information and he makes it alive in the hearts of those that he calls internally and powerfully to respond in a saving way. Now that only leads us to one final call, which is the call that you and I are meant to make. So the first two calls are, who's doing the calling in the universal call? Believers. Believers. Messengers of the Lord. Those that have themselves experienced their life being transformed by the saving message of the gospel, then sent out by the Lord to share that message with people that do not yet know the Lord. So it's you and I that are issuing the external call. Who's issuing the internal effectual call? That, that is reserved only to the great shepherd himself. He's the only one that can make that internal call. The only one that can ultimately save a person. But the third call, who's making that call? The third call is made by the sinner, the unbeliever the person who is not yet saved. And in the moment of the third call, they actually experience salvation. So this is the saving call of faith 
by grace. And we'll just review, and I won't have to teach you on these. I know you're familiar with these passages, but let me read them. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. This is a responsive call. I've heard the, 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 the universal call of the information of the gospel, and I'm now responding by the grace of God to the internal call God is stirring in my heart, His Spirit. And the result is, verse 8 of chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The faith that grace stirs in the heart of a person that's actually saved that faith is their responsive call where they now call on the Lord to be not practically saved from their circumstances but spiritually saved from their sins. And then turning over to Romans chapter 10. We'll read a short section starting in verse 8. This is Paul's summary of this interplay between these three calls and all three of these calls are represented in this section Romans 10 8 but what does it say it here is the saving message of the gospel the word is near you in your heart or in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith that we proclaim so we're doing the proclaiming of the external message the universal call Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the two calls are described in verse 9. One call in verse 8, which is the universal call. In verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, which of the three calls is that? That's the third call. Confessing with your mouth is your responsive call. But that only happens if you first truly believe in your heart, the effectual call, the call of the Spirit of God working in your heart, flipping that switch to turn you in an instant, a nanosecond of spiritual time from unbeliever to believer. And then you responsively confess with your mouth and the result is you're actually saved. Because in verse nine, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, responsively now, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction, it's a universal call, between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And then Paul quotes Joel's prophecy, the very end of it, verse 21 of Joel's prophecy. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, what does this have to do with us today? What should we take away from our study in Peter's message and this focus on these three salvation calls and even including the idea of being spiritually and practically saved? First thing is, we've spent a lot of time developing Joel's prophecy and making sure you really get it. And so I would just say this, trust in the certainty of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. How many Bible prophecies have been 100% exactly as they declared it would happen fulfilled? And now understand there's still a few prophecies yet to be fulfilled, which is 
The Lord Jesus is coming back. There's going to be a final day of judgment. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. There are a few Bible prophecies yet to be fulfilled. But the vast majority, I would say 99% of all of the prophecies in Scripture have already been fulfilled. What's God's track record so far? 100% accuracy, 100% fulfillment, 100% faithfulness. So when I read Bible prophecy, I just anchor my heart to the certainty which tells us God described all of these events before they actually happened. Why? It's for my heart's confidence in him to show me just to what extent he's really in charge of history as it's unfolding. There's nothing that's just flying out of control. God is entirely and totally in control of it all And the track record of Bible prophecy is meant to anchor my heart in that level of confidence. Second, lean on the faithfulness of God to protect believers in tribulation. You and I will not experience the devastation that happened in the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It happened, it's over, it's been fulfilled. Does that mean there will never be a a circumstance of tribulation in the future for Christians to ever have to experience and endure? There There are believers right now, today, that are experiencing tribulation of various types throughout the world around us. Maybe you're not in tribulation, but your turn may come. Your turn may come to have to go through circumstances of tribulation. What this particular circumstance showed me and, and helped me tremendously when I first understood it. And every time I revisit and study it, it helps me even more. That is, just like God was able to preserve Noah from the flood, just like he was able to preserve Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment, just like he was able to preserve the children of Israel from the 10 plagues, just like he was able to preserve the Christians in 70 AD, he is able to safeguard you. Not just spiritually save you, but to physically safeguard you in your circumstances if you'll lean on him and look to him in those moments. Third, learn to heed the warnings of God in Scripture. So this this day of Pentecost sermon was a big warning. Matthew 24, huge warning. Luke 21, huge warning. Those don't apply directly to us. Indirectly, we're meant to learn the principle. What can we apply God warns us about all kinds of stuff in Scripture. He warns, he warns you about your, your relational associations out in the world around you. He warns you about various kinds of sin and the dangers that are inherent in those kinds of sin. And every single day, there are Christians that disregard those warnings and just do-do-do-do go along and then the consequences smack them to their senses. Learn to heed the warnings of God in Scripture. You don't have to go through the consequence in order to learn the lesson of what the warning was meant to do for you. It's meant to preserve you from adding extra trouble to your life. And then finally and most importantly, call on the Lord yourself to be saved. I would hope most everyone here has internally responded to the work of the Spirit of God calling them to salvation in the universal message of the gospel that you have heard before and you've heard again here this morning. I would hope that not a single one here has failed to call on the Lord 
in order to truly be saved. Let's worship him with one last song this morning.